Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care, the podcast about mental health, self-care, wellness, by a host that really hates the term self-care and is not super great at wellness. I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that you're going to listen to me and this next guest. I've got Yolanda Williams on today, who has an organization or company. What's the best way to say that? Is it your company, your organization, your brand? Brand. Brand. Got it. Um, Decolonizing Parenting. And I love that. And if you're not a parent, I hope you stick around. I find that sometimes in the world of trying to reparent ourselves, there's something that can be really healing about listening to people talk about parenting, particularly listening to them talk about wanting to be good parents and how they're failing and and how they're wanting to do better and what they think about parenting. So I'm glad you're with us. And Yolanda, I'm super glad that you're with me. Both of us had really rushed mornings. So rushed. I'm so tired. (laughs) And the amount of podcasts that I roll into with zero plan would, well, actually, it probably wouldn't shock many people. I don't tend to have a plan about anything. (laughs) I tell people, though, like, it's like a, like, it's a thing. I'm just like, listen, it's conversational. I don't have questions. It's because I don't want to have them. I don't want to send you questions because that means I have to do pre-work. Ain't nobody got time for that. I know. And I try to check with people because I try to appreciate that some people really need a plan. I am so happy to shoot from the hip. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, we were like talking about something and I was like, wait, hit record. It's going to be good. I was sharing that my morning was a little rushed because I thought my daughter was sick. And then she made a miraculous recovery as many four-year-olds do once she realized she had to actually stay in bed for the morning if she was sick. And so I had to rush her to school. And my older daughter actually sleeps with me. and. We sleep really well together. I don't. Mm-mm. I haven't had a good night's sleep in four years. It's difficult. So like recently, Casey had a post about sleep training and I commented and I got, <laughs> I was like, well, cry it out is traumatizing. And the thing about me is I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Right. And some people agreed. Some people were just like, you know, why would you say that? That's not what she's talking about. And the thing is, I understand the like the desperation because I still haven't had a good night's sleep. Gia wakes up. She just started sleeping through the night at three, but she sleeps so terribly that I wake up multiple times a night just to switch to the other side of the bed. She's I am on the edge of reason of the bed. Right. I'm like floating the way that my mattress is now, like each side has a divot of me. And then in the middle, is like a hill. So it feels weird to even sit in the middle because it's just like, this doesn't feel right because that's how poorly she wants to be under me. And I think that's from nursing whenever she wanted to. And she wants to be touching me and it's terrible. So I understand the like desperation is just like, I need to get some effing sleep because I'm going to lose my mind. I feel that. Well, and I think that's probably why my daughter and I sleep okay to like it's it's such a different experience is because I didn't co-sleep from birth like I did sleep train I did cry it out and so she got used to sleeping like she never really had that like skin to skin all night long and so she just like lays there like a little log and so do I you know what I thought was really interesting so for anyone listening I did a post about how I had sleep trained and I did use cry it out and what I found really interesting when you had commented cry it out is traumatizing is that because you and I have a relationship, like we have the beginnings of a relationship, we've talked offline, we've sort of chatted about things, we did that live together. It was interesting to me how different it was to experience your comment, because my experience of it was like, hey, that's what she believes. That's what she thinks. 
it wasn't like I was like eh, on you. Yeah, I was, like that I wasn't what I was doing personally, and it was like easier to hold. Like that's her opinion. It's not about me. And it was just kind of an interesting reflection on like the internet in general, because when I don't know someone, like if I hadn't have known you and you had commented that, like I would have taken it as adversarial. Yeah. Like I I would have felt attacked. I would have maybe even like pushed back really hard on it. And I did push back really hard on other people that said similar things, but it was like you and I had this container that recontextualized that comment. And I think that's the important thing we need to remember about social media. The way we interact with each other online is just so nasty sometimes. And I think a lot of times we assume that people are trying to attack you or trying to be negative. And really, I was just stating like what I feel is a fact. And it wasn't like I'm trying to shame and say, and that's why I had like a second thing. Like, I don't know if this is what you're saying. I was trying to like clean it up a bit in so many words. I didn't want you to feel like I was attacking you. And that's also why I made like 5011 (laughs) response videos because I wanted to give more context. And that's the hard part is like, these are some very short form communication style TikTok, you know? So we are with, I think now they've increased to like 10 minutes. Like who wants to sit on TikTok for 10 minutes, listen to somebody talk, but I don't. Cause that's not what it's for. That's not what we want it to be for. So we get these three minute sound bites of someone's opinion. And we have to remember, like, it's not the totality of what they're saying because you had to then go in and talk about in your reply videos to other people, you were like expanding on what you were saying. And I didn't want it to, you know, I'm, I'm sorry if I, you know, if I did make you feel away because I wasn't definitely wasn't what I was trying to do. And I thought about it and I was just like, well, I probably could have said that differently, but it's something I feel strongly about. And there are some cultural reasons that I talked about why I feel the way I do. And I hope that, you know, I was able to clear some things up for you because I'm not worried about nobody else. Well, that's what was kind of interesting to me was that I think had it been anybody else, I would have felt like what you were saying was that I had traumatized my kid. And then like the natural like jump from that is like, that's a bad mom. But because I've talked to you, like you and I have had, like we had a long live about parenting. And so I know, or at least I think I know your general opinions about me as a person. So I was able to hold that opinion differently. And it was just an interesting thing. And then I, it kind of also brought me to, I was thinking so like long about what was interesting about just that this in general, this concept of sleep and parenting. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's like a no win situation. It's a no win for moms in general. And for the children, right? We are either choosing ourselves or choosing them. And so in your case, you were like, I got to choose me because I cannot. And in my case, I was like, I have to choose her because of the cultural context of She's already born into this body as a, you know, as a black child, a disabled one at that, a girl at that. So I'm trying to do everything I can to mitigate trauma. And, and that means I have to suffer. And that's what I've been doing. I'm not even gonna lie to y'all. I have been, it's been really difficult to not sleep well and try to run a business or just try to be a good parent. It really is difficult. So I understand what you were saying when you were just like, I would choose this way any day. For me, I didn't feel like I had a choice in choosing my child because of, you know, white supremacy delusion and and all this stuff that she has to deal with already coming into the world with a mom who's traumatized by whiteness. That's the things that I have to hold. And so it's interesting 
how we can see the same, like talk about the same thing. It's just so from two different worlds. And I think that's why we need to learn how to talk to each other to understand the context. Well, and I think the other, you know, and it's almost a similar idea is that the way that cultural things play out in my life as a white mother is like there was just the fact that when I was sleep deprived, I was cold and angry and I was incapable of being a conscientious parent or a conscious parent, gentle parenting, respectful parent, whatever you would call it. And, you know, that I did not want to be that mother that could not be responsive, right? Like that would have been for me a legacy of isolation and coldness. And like we, you know, I am blessed to have a great relationship with my mom, but in general, like in the white world, the white community, like daughters and their mothers have a very complex, often screwed up relationship. And I think, you know, it's interesting when we talk about like, okay, I chose me, you chose your daughter, but I guess I see it a slightly different way because like the only, when I look at like the options around sleep, where whether it's like sleep training and there are, there are other ways of sleep training that don't involve like crying. I know a lot of people do like no cry solutions and things like that. I'm not as familiar with those, but it's like, it kind of seems like there's three options. There's like sleep train your child to sleep in their crib alone, co-sleep with your child in a bed, or just never sleep at all. To me, that's like the only actual option that just never considers what you need is like just never sleep because then you can always provide, you know, the skin to skin, the close comfort, and there's no risk at all. Physical, emotional, like no risk at all. But that's not like realistic. And I think in my head, moms that co-sleep are going through the same process as moms that sleep train. Like we're looking and going, okay, we have to sleep. We have to sleep. And so if you have to sleep, the choice is you have to either sleep with your baby or you have to figure out a way to get your baby to sleep by themselves. And there are certainly risk factors for both of those. Like we talk about the risk factor. Like I believe in looking at the research that is available, that there isn't enough sort of data that says, look, we have this proof that this long-term really negative impacts. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no negative impacts. It just means that there are no documented right now. And so I had to go in going, it is a possibility that this could have a negative emotional impact. But for me, I also, when I looked at co-sleep, I felt like there were still risk factors there namely like safety risk factors, right? Like there is a possibility that a child could suffocate or asphyxiate in a co-sleeping arrangement. And what I think sometimes happens, and I don't think you and I do this, but I think that like people who sleep train will, the assumptions they make about the mother who co-sleeps is like, she's laying in a fluffy bed of pillows and she doesn't care about risk and she's, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, like, the mother that co-sleeps, when they see a mother that sleep trains, she makes this assumption of, like, she doesn't care about being responsive. She just shut the door and let the kids scream in their feces all night. And it's like, (laughs) (laughs) when in reality, like... That is not what's going on for either one of us. The mothers, yeah, the mothers I know that co-sleep went, okay, there is a risk here. Oh, yeah. But you took mitigating factors, right? Like maybe you decided not to sleep with a big comforter. Maybe you decided to not drink. Maybe you decided to. And like 
that's what I did. Like, I said, how can I mitigate the risk factors that this could have a negative impact? And so I chose, you know, okay, we're going to do a schedule, like a pretty regimented schedule for two weeks before we do anything so that you are adequately sleepy. And then I'm going to lay you down. I'm going to practice a bedtime routine and then I'm going to lay you down and then I'm going to leave the room for three minutes. And in three minutes, I'm going to come back in. And for both of my daughters, it actually ended up differently. So one of my daughters could not calm down in the crib. And like, I can tell the difference between I'm uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable, and I'm dysregulated, I'm dysregulated. And so I found that she was dysregulated. She could not be regulated in the crib. So I had to pick her up and hold her until she regulated. And when I felt that regulation, I laid her back down. And I did it again, three minutes. My other daughter, what was interesting is that I found that if I picked her up, she got more dysregulated. If I kept my little hand on her in the crib and I patted her butt and I said, mommy's here, mommy's here, then she would re-regulate. So like I still co-regulated with my kids, right? Three minutes, we're out. Three minutes, we're out. Six minutes, we're out. Six minutes, we're out. Always listening for that where's your window of tolerance? I want to make sure that I'm in what I deem sort of like a comfortable level of tolerance, not a complete, I can't loot, right? And that was what I was comfortable with, right? I would not have been comfortable with just letting them scream all night. I would not have been comfortable with vomiting and all this. But I also, when I hear about that happening, I think to myself, oh God, that's painful to hear. And I would never do that. And I try to also hold space for Maybe if I was desperate enough. There's always nuance, people. And I even had to say, I have been working from home since I moved out here to Arkansas from California. I moved before I was pregnant, not before, while I was pregnant. When I found out I was pregnant, I moved near my family. And so I had the privilege of being at home and not necessarily having to leave the house to go do things. You know, she did not sleep well. And I learned that with autistic kids, a lot of them don't sleep well. So sleep training wouldn't have worked for her anyway, you know? And I quickly learned that when I told you my friend got me the sleep trainer, she did, that was what she recommended was exactly what you just said. And I went and I redecorated the room. I got the blackout blinds. I got the white noise machine. I even got, it was some sort of like a compression, like sleeve that she hates because she doesn't like covers. And so I got all these things and I was ready. I was like, we gonna, I gotta get some sleep. Mama gonna sleep chain. I lasted an hour. I just couldn't do it. And because she couldn't do it and, and it didn't matter if I was touching her, if I picked her up, she was screaming. And I didn't know at the time that she was autistic. I think she, I think I was about eight months. She she was about eight months when I tried this. I didn't get her diagnosis until she was 18 months or no, I'm lying. Um, After she was two, I got that diagnosis. So I, understanding that autistic kids, a lot of them don't have very good sleep, uh, sort of routines and that kind of thing, I had to learn what was best for us as a family. And I think that is where I always tell people, I'm a conscious parenting coach. I tell parents, you need to figure out what works best for your family. In my family, there's unlimited screen time. That's because we are neurodivergent people over here and screens actually help me. They've been helping her learn how to speak. She has limited words. She has learned how to speak and sing using a screen. So we, it's unlimited screen time over here. For me, we don't go to bed early. She Her bedtime starts, it's about 10 o'clock. Anything earlier, she wakes up at 4 a.m. And like, this is this is clockwork. So when she goes to sleep and it's like nine, I'm just like, wake up. Mm-mm. 
because she does not sleep through the night otherwise, okay? She wants to wake up at four o'clock and party. So I had to realize like, I cannot do things like everyone else. I can't follow all the rules. Like, you know, here's this book of things. All the I had to do what was best for my family. And I think as long as we always keep in mind, like, like what you said, I can tell if my child is really dysregulated. I can tell, I have to figure out what they needed. You figured out what each child needed and you went with that. It wasn't like you closed the door. Cause that's, that is what I hear. When people say cry it out, that's what I think of. Because I, I have seen like on these shows, like the nanny and stuff, they talk about doing that. It's so brutal to me. And um, the history of just some of this, some of these parenting techniques from like, uh, you know, the boomers is so brutal to children. And, and so that is where my mind goes. But honestly, if you are like checking in and making sure like there is no throwing up, they're not screaming into their horse. Like to me that you're, you figure out what's best for your family. I'm <laughs> that's your business. I'm just, and my business is making sure children aren't. What's interesting about that is like, if I'm being honest about like, I truly believe like I do not have, I don't look down on mothers that co-sleep. Like I couldn't. And there were a few nights where I would do maybe like the last hour because I was so sleepy. But like, I don't know if it was my anxiety or what, but like the risk that anything could happen, even if I was fall- like mitigating the best I could, like I couldn't get over it. I could not fall asleep. If I did fall asleep, I'd jerk awake. I could not function. And so like, I was so afraid. And some of that was my own sort of like I had a really difficult time with infertility. I had two miscarriages and I had this like pervasive belief that like I wasn't allowed to have good things. And if I did something bad would happen. And so it was like, I can't. Okay. Okay. I'm going to stop you there. So you just saying that like something happened in my body because I have this, when Gia does something and she scares the shit out of me, I get angry. I get so mad. And I really just started investigating that. And I realized it's because I have a fear that I can't keep her alive. It's a big fear that I cannot keep her safe and I can't keep her alive. But you tied a couple things together in what you just said. And I'm feeling like that is also a part of that anger that comes up for me, right? Because this child who is like so purely like loves me, like I I just be like, girl, you love me so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> you love me less sometimes. It's so, it's so much. It's so much. I've never experienced a love like this. And it's overwhelming for me at times. And and I'm scared of it at times. I'm getting emotional. It's scary for me because I just want to protect her. So when she does something, I'm just like, oh my God, she could have died. And then, then all the stuff about myself would be true, but I'm not good enough to be a good parent. I don't deserve good things. I can't keep her safe. And I project that with anger. Like, and I'm learning because that's my job as a conscious parenting coach, but also as a parent to learn what those triggers are and learn how I project those triggers out into the world. And so I'm learning that when I start to feel that fear and that anger rise up, I leave the room. (laughs) If she's safe, I just leave the room and I just kind of go and like punch the air or something because it's there. It's a trigger and it's real. And I can't pretend like it's not, but it's my responsibility to make sure I'm not projecting that onto her because it's not fair. I just want to make sure that she stays alive. And she, and every day I have a sensory seeking autistic child. It's like, why are you trying to kill yourself? Why are you having that in your mouth? Why are you touching that? What, you know, why do you have a battery? I found a, she was chewing on a battery. I was like, why are you doing that? 
She walked over to me the other day and just vomited. I was like, what the hell? What's going on? In the vomit was one of my crystals. It was huge. She was choking on it. I didn't know. And I had to just walk away. I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to survive <laughs> motherhood. Am I, can I be a mother? Like I'm constantly, it's a constant questioning of, am I even cut out for this? You know, man. Okay. I have so many thoughts, but I'm going to take a pause and we'll come back after the break. Is 2024 bringing exciting or unexpected changes to your life? Here's a secret weapon to help you face those challenges with more confidence. A great term life insurance policy. I can't believe that I am 37 years old and I am excited about life insurance, but life comes at you fast. I feel like yesterday I was 25 and I wasn't thinking about stuff like this. But when my husband and I got married and we started having kids, it was one of the first conversations that he brought up. Really, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to protect your family's financial future so you can focus on what's ahead, knowing your family is protected if something else unexpected happens. And I feel like I sleep better at night knowing that if something were to happen to he or I, that the other one could take care of our family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. It's all online and on your schedule. No appointments, scheduling, or piles of paperwork. Just apply when it's convenient for you. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So don't be somebody who finds when tragedy strikes, you're wishing that you would have made this choice. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at Meet fabric.com slash struggle. That's meetfabric.com slash struggle. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash struggle. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. I'm someone who happens to believe that the chore of feeding myself is one of the most annoying care tasks. And that's why I really like Factor. And when I say I really like Factor, I mean, they shipped me some food and told me to eat it and make an ad. And I not only did that, but then I went back and spent my own money and bought more of them. And I can't wait till the box gets here. That's because Factor really does make eating easier. And this was on the heels of a doctor's appointment where I got very strict instructions to give my body better nutrients. So wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And they actually do taste good. You'll get over 35 different options a week to choose from. And even I, a very picky eater, always can find something that I like. I love that they are two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. They all take two minutes in the microwave. Snacks, smoothies, breakfast, dinner. You can discover a wide variety of easy options. Sign up and save now. We've done the math. Factor is actually less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. My own dietitian was stoked when I told her that I'd made this decision. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. So head over to factormeals.com slash struggle50 and use code struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. That's code struggle50 at factormeals.com slash struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. Even my husband says this is the best he's ever tried, and we've tried a lot of these. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. 
I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Okay, we're back with Yolanda from Decolonizing Parenting. And here's something that is so, I see you with your Uncrustable. (laughs) Here's what's so interesting to me. Like, I have to admit that when I hear people talk about co-sleeping, I sometimes have to battle like my own assumptions about what that means, right? Because just like you said, you know, when I hear sleep trainer cried out, I hear put them in the crib, shut the door, you don't care about their needs. And when I hear co-sleeping, where I immediately go to is this sense of how could anyone for their own fear or comfort even take the slightest bit of chance that their child would be harmed? Like, cause to me, I'm like, my kids feel so precious, feel so right. And so like, because that's my context, it's hard for me when I hear people talk about co-sleeping because I think what could be worth that? What could be worth that? Even if it's a 1% chance, what could be worth that? But like when I hear you, so if that's like the only thing I hear about someone, like that's what I feel. And I know not to, you know, I don't want to say that to them because what I have learned is like when I listen to you talk like you did right before the break about like that deep fear of like your worst fears confirmed that you may not be a good mom, that you may not have what it takes to protect them. Like, it makes me realize that you're just like me. And I see that humanity. And I see that like, like, F, like it, you love them so much. You love them. So it's like, it's like the worst thing sometimes. Cause I was just like, I'd be looking at her. I'm just like, I would kill for you, Liddy, like little girl. I would literally go to jail for you. I would go underneath the jail for you. And that's a scary thing. I have thought that before. And it's not a like boast. It's like a fear. It's like if someone were to hurt her, I would not be able to control myself. I would go to prison. I would go to prison. And see, I have an extra layer. This is hypothetical. In case someone is listening to this in the future, and I have, in fact, been accused of hurting someone, this is hypothetical. I would never actually do that. Okay. But yet, no, it's terrifying. And that vulnerable moment, and it's always like 3 a.m. and you and looking at this baby and you you feel so alone and so inadequate. And I think that what's hard is to like, when I learn things about whether it like parenting tactics without context, it's like I struggle sometimes to hold the humanity of that other mother and not point that out. And I, first of all, I love that like, when you talk about decolonizing parenting, and I want to get into that, and I love that when you talk about your house and you're like, like there are really deep reasons, cultural reasons, like why we co-sleep. And I took, you know, and I took steps to mitigate any risk to that. And we're, we have no limits on screen time. Like I love that talking of like decolonizing parenting isn't just like a list of parenting decisions and traits. Oh, absolutely not. We have to decolonize. That's the thing. One thing I'm very vocal about, especially on TikTok, is how I cannot stand the the parent coaching industry. I hate it, to be honest with you, and I'm part of it, y'all. It's because of the way that it is spoke. We speak about all these things in such binary 
You know what I'm saying? Like really just black and white things. And that is probably going to piss some folks off because the majority of the coaches are white. And so it just feels very regimented all the time. It just feels like you need to do this. And it's just like, absolutely not. There's nuance that we have to consider. We Everybody has a different, all kids are different, right? What we know universally is that all kids um, deserve and need kindness and empathy and patience and love and guidance from their parents. That's across the board. All kids need that. What they, every kid may not work well with certain types of the way, you know, communication styles. This is what comes with learning about your children. And I just hate the way that it feels like, here are some tips and tricks to stop Trump, uh, stop tantrums. It's like, no, that's not how life is. <laughs> and it's not even about the kit. Like what I can't stand about, it's like the people who are very sort of like hardcore, like I spank and I do this and I do that. There's this pride of like, I know how to do it. I'm strong. But then even on like the total opposite end, when you get to like super crunchy moms that, you know, they have their own list of like, I only breastfeed and I only close. Even then it's like, it's still about them. It's like, look what a good mom I am. And I feel like parents are trapped in that, like when they're trying to look for the quote unquote, like right thing to do, it's like this minefield of making the decisions that make you a good mom, as opposed to making it child centered. And that's my point, right? Because and that's why I chose to do, I had to be child-centered in everything that I do for cultural reasons. And when we talk about decolonizing, I had to, I went back and I read stuff around ancestral ways of parenting and I wanted to do that. I did not want to do things that were sort of rooted in like an individualistic society. The problem is that we live in an individualistic society, right? And so the reason why I had, to this day, I'm not getting any sleep and feeling sometimes trapped by parenthood, by motherhood is because the village is dead for all of us, right? We are not living the way we're supposed to be living. This whole siloed nuclear. That one, yeah. But you know, the nuclear family structure is not a natural structure and it's fairly new. And we have to understand historically, this is not how families function. And so when we start to look at like how race and class played a really big part into how we parent today. I want to know parts of that. The problem is that I don't have a village, right? So I'm trying to do things like ancestrally that require a village without a village. Don't get me wrong. My family's out here with me. They help as much as they can, but we don't live together. And that's why I am doing the whole, I'm building an intentional community with eight other Black mothers because I need, we all need to be in very close proximity to one another to receive the help that we need to be better parents. So when I don't have it, because there's days I just don't, and those are the days I call just keep everyone alive days where I don't do shit, but lay down and she gets to basically run the house. I'm just trying to keep her alive that day because I don't have anything to give her. I'm out of spoons, I'm out of energy, I'm burnt out. If I was in a village though, someone would come and take her, right? And entertain her and be with her and feed her properly. There's a lot of chicken McNuggets that happen on that day. (laughs) And I don't care. Well, the proximity thing is huge because like I'm really blessed to have some very close friends, close, emotional, intimate, vulnerable. I can tell them anything, but none of them live near me with the exception of one or two. And the ones that live near me have kids my similar age. And you would think like, oh, so there's such great help. It's like, no, we can't help each other at all because we all have the burden of our own whole nuclear family and house and care tasks. And like, it takes 
all of our time just to take care of what we have here. And, you know, one town over, it takes all of their time to take care of their stuff there and the schedule that it's actually really hard to get together. And when you do get together, it's like you can get together for a social thing. But that's different than like, let's wash our clothes down by the river. Like, you know what I mean? Or like, my kids are going to run over to your house because I have something to do. And then maybe I'll make dinner and we'll eat together. I mean, it's, I used to be jealous of like, in no way, like, covet, like, Mormon polygamist wives, but I do sometimes get jealous about like the setup of, you know, well, three houses together with one shared backyard and everyone is just helping each other and I mean, but you can still, you can do that now though. I mean, you can, like, I'm literally working towards that very thing. We ain't going to be polygamous, but I'm literally working towards that. We're going out to Georgia, we're forming a land trust and we will do that exact thing, farm and everything else, because these systems are not set up for healthy families. If you really think about it, everything, when it comes to how we sleep, how our children sleep to us, our, their decision to go to college, everything is really centered around capitalism. It really is. I'll send you this video when we get off and it's around the why sleep training came about. And a lot of it was rooted in racism, but a lot of it was also because of capitalism, because of the church that said, hey, sleeping communally is perverse. It's You're not supposed to do it. It came from um, disease because people were so nasty back in the day <laughs> that it, a lot of people were catching diseases, having to live in such close proximity together. So you're forming a community. Intentional community. So, And I'm doing that because I am trying to go back to that village where we are there for one another. There's a communal kitchen, but we have our separate dwellings and, and so on and so forth. It is necessary. Like we can do that. But even just the other day, a friend of mine came, called me and she was just like, hey, if you need me to help you with Gia while you get prepared for your parenting conference, let me know. And I was just like, yeah. So she came over and watched Gia while I worked. Like that to me is a way that we can be in community with one another. It doesn't have to be where I hope that everyone starts getting back to the whole village mentality in an actual village. But since a lot of us feel like we can't, I want us to start thinking about like, how can we use what privilege we have to help someone else and vice versa, right? People hear privilege and they get so upset because they think I'm only talking about race, but I have privilege of time because I work for myself and I work from home. And so that same friend, I go pick her daughter up from school three days a week uh, and from school and take her to the child development center and come home hour and a half out of my day to help a friend who otherwise would not have child any way to transport her child. That is me being a village member and a community member. She then was just like, I want to help you do the same thing. So she came over to my house and helped me with Gia with and brought her daughter and they played while I worked. And I was able to get some work done distraction free, kind of, um, with the help of another adult, right? So we can figure out how can we be there for each other. If you have the resources where you have time and you love to cook and you know your friend does not have time, but they but they need a, a home cooked meal, cook some extra food and maybe they can, I don't know, watch your kids sometimes. Like we just gotta talk to each other and figure out what each other needs and what we can do for one another and start to live that way so we're not so dependent on these systems. And we're not so individualistic. That's great. Okay. After we take a break, I want to come back and ask you about some specific things that people can do to start to decolonize their parenting. 
Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you you listen to your podcasts. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Okay, we're back with Yolanda from Decolonizing Parenting. And I do want to say one thing that I love about you. Can I do that? Oh, I always take a compliment. (laughs) One of the things that I've noticed about a lot of parenting experts and parenting spaces, um, particularly the ones that are led by white women, is that whether they intend to do this or not, there's this message that if you could just master, and they do this even in like gentle parenting spaces, if you could just master gentle parenting, you wouldn't be struggling so much with parenthood. You wouldn't have so many behavior problems with your kid. You wouldn't have, like, it wouldn't be this hard. Like, and so a lot of, a lot of, it draws a lot of people in because they are experiencing a really tough time with parenting and they're looking for like the hack that will make everything easier. And what I appreciate about you when you talk about parenting and conscious parenting is that even when we are doing all of the quote unquote right things, we're being conscious parenting, we're being responsive, we're being, we're in an environment that itself is going to be the barrier. And so we're still going to have survival days. We're still going to get angry and need to walk out of the room. And that's not because we're not being a good enough conscious parent. It's because there's no amount of conscious parenting that is going to overcome being a single parent, 
or living in a capitalistic society, or needing to go to work when you haven't slept, or having been traumatized by your own parents and now still dealing with this. And I find that that is rare in the parenting world to talk about that at the same time. Yeah, it's disappointing. And it's the reason why I choose to be so vocal about my own hangups and my my own mistakes. I want to humanize this whole thing. It is not just about like, talking softly and giving choices and like, absolutely not. The conscious part of conscious parenting is you being conscious of your trauma, your mood, your mindset, how your socioeconomic uh, status may be impacting, right? Your decisions that you're making. And it's going to look different for everybody because of these issues around race and class and privilege. So my parenting as, you know, a black single mother who is, has an invisible disability, but who is able-bodied, parenting an autistic child is going to be completely different than yours, right? And I want to hold space for, for all of that nuance and just tell people, like, the more that you go within, the easier it does get, the more habits you can form to be conscious. But I feel like what these coaches are doing is telling people how to do conscious parenting instead of how to be conscious people. And so that's where it's different for me, because I just want you to be a conscious person, because those conscious, as we learn more about ourselves, about our triggers, about how we respond to those triggers, how we communicate our coping skills, it's not just the parenting that's affected. It is literally every single relationship with every human being we come across. And so my goal with conscious parenting is not just about these kids. It's really about the world, right? Because I think about how many hurt people are walking around here and we don't know how to communicate. I mean, look at that thread, your thread, like we can see it. People don't want to talk to each one another. We don't care to have respectful communication with one another. So many hurt people walking around here being hurt and just bleeding all over everybody and not caring. And I just envision a future where people do care because we've been empathetic. We've listened to them. We've told them that their voices matter, that their feelings matter, but there's boundaries, right? You don't get to speak to me like that just because you're upset. We've taught them boundaries. We've taught them respectful communication intact. And we've also taught them that everyone is not deserving of respect all the time, right? How to advocate for yourself. When to be violent. Like for me as a revolutionary, there's space for violence in this world, just not against the most innocent among us, which is children. So it's like having that conversation, being teaching those things to our children, for a more liberated future for everybody. Like that's what how I approach my coaching business versus like, it feels like very present the way that people are coaching people versus me, I'm more like futuristically. We're doing this for future generations. I want my daughter to not have to go through the things that I'm going through now. So I'm hoping that she is just like this because it's like normalized and it's who she is. If she chooses to have children that they're, that she, she just does this naturally. She's a conscious parent naturally. And it's just a a freaking preset. It's not, you know, she doesn't have to learn it. It's just who she is. It becomes who her children are. And if we had millions of people who is just how they are, the world would look completely different. It's so powerful what you said about violence, because I, whenever you hear parents be like, if somebody hits you, hit them back. And it's like, that doesn't sit right with me. And when I became a parent and I have kids, there's also something that doesn't sit right with me to tell my daughter there's never a reason to push someone. There's never a reason. And so, and I've told her before, like, if you don't like the way that an adult is touching your body, you tell them to stop. And if they don't stop after the first time, you start screaming and pushing, right? Like, and I've told her also, 
if anyone is ever hurting your little sister, you are to immediately physically engage with them. Like you said earlier, like everything is nuanced, but like I don't find any benefit in teaching my white daughters that passivity is always the right thing. And like you said, it's not about violence is never the answer. It's about oppression is never the answer, right? Like, no, don't ever push or hit your sister. She's little. She's your sister. But absolutely. And don't allow anybody else to do it. Don't be letting anybody else do it either. One of my good friends who's also a therapist and does parenting stuff, she's like, I tell my kid, never start a fight. But if somebody else starts one, you need to end it. To finish it. And she doesn't mean like be bigger, stronger, hurt them. She just means like you're not going to lay there and just let somebody punch you. No, no, we're not. I don't want you to ever start anything. And that's the problem. Like, and this is why I follow up so close with her at this at the park, because she is, like I said, she's autistic. She doesn't understand boundaries. Right. So just the other day at the park, she pushed this girl so hard and I was very close. So I was able to, to tell her, like, I'm so sorry. She's not supposed to be doing that. And I, Gia wasn't looking at me, but I was just like, Gia, we don't push. And like, we need to go over here. The problem is that, again, folks just see the action and they don't have any, they're, you know, and all these things will circulate on like TikTok. And what would happen if your child got pushed by this bigger child? My bigger child is autistic. and doesn't understand boundaries. So I'm, as a parent, I'm right up behind her. But that's also my fear so as a child who is autistic and cannot speak up for herself because she does not speak very many words that she's going to be harmed. So I'm very overprotective of my kid. And I hope that she's able to do some sort of self-defense classes because I want her to learn some jujitsu. I want her and I'm, I want self-defense in like the martial arts because they also teach you like restraint. Yes, restraint. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's what I actually really, this is totally a tangent at this point, but it's important. I love jujitsu. I plan to have both of my daughters do it because especially some of the gyms, like they actually teach it with an anti-bullying curriculum where they talk about like, we never use our skills to hurt anyone. But if somebody is hurting us or if someone is hurting someone else, we use our skills to hold that person down and call for a teacher. It's a mindset shift for kids and to really how we think about violence needs to shift. And and the thing about violence and a country that is was literally built on violence, it perpetuates violence every day and how it does not take care of its citizens and skews the perception of what violent people look like. We have to be cognizant of the messages that we give our children, especially white children around violence. I posted um, on TikTok recently A black woman said, white people don't whoop their kids. And I was like, who told you that shit? Like, they certainly do. What are you talking about? But that is the perception that a lot of people have. And that's why when, as a black coach, I hear that's some white people shit. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that gentle parenting. That's white people stuff. And I'm just like, so what what I'm hearing you say is that white people are more inherently gentle and that inherently more loving with their kids. And we are not. That's what you're saying. You may not know that's what you're saying, but you're basically regurgitating really racist rhetoric. And that's just absolutely not true. And then the thread of people are just like, I got my ass kicked. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. When I think about the stereotypical picture of like a father with a belt saying like, come here, it's always a white father. Like, at least that's what I saw um, with friends and family. I have to start to land the plane here. And here's how I would love to end it. 
I'd love for you to share something in your parenting that is working really well right now. Just like a joyful sort of like maybe it's a strategy or intervention or like a way of being that is seems to be working really well for you. So when G and I got COVID back in January, I was trying to figure out what the hell we're going to do for 10 days. And it turned out she teaches me so much. This is the whole point of that is that she teaches me a lot. And I feel like if parents are open to allowing their children to teach them things, they will learn so much. What she taught me was the value of slowing down and the value of visioning. Because she was like, I don't want to get out this house. I'm like, I don't know what to do. So we would just take drives in the country. And I was resisting every day for 10 days. We took a drive because she was like, I got to get out this house. But now it's like a thing that we do. We take drives through the country almost every night. And this is, you know, we're trying to move onto a farm in the country. So it actually allows both of us to like just be in the environment that we, that at least I want to, for us to be in. And I get to vision and I get to slow down and I get to not be on my phone because I'm always on it. And I really get to like, I point out things to her. Oh, do you see the cows? Because I, I live in Arkansas, y'all. Do you see the cows? Do you see the horses? Like, and we stop sometimes and like look at ducks and throw rocks into the pond. And her just sort of, because she used to throw tent, like she would just, she would fall all the way out if we didn't leave the house. And that was the only way. And I thought it wasn't going to be enough. And it is. Every day she puts her shoes on the wrong feet and we go and we get into the car and she is so excited just to take a drive. And we've seen deer, you know, um, as we were, I'm just like, please don't come in front of me, deer. Don't do that. But it allowed us to slow down, allowed me to slow down and to vision the life that I hope, which is a slow life, which is a, e- a life filled with ease and rest and more visioning and not this frenzy that we're constantly in and not the social media that I'm constantly on. This is what I'm, what she made me do is what I actually want to be doing. And I, but I resisted it. So just listening to her and being able to learn from her is, has been, that's to me, the biggest lesson is just like, she knows things too. She knows things and be willing to listen to it. Okay. So where can people find you if they want to come and learn more from you? Okay. I have a website, parentedecolonize.com. I'm also on all the social media. So, um, Instagram is spelled funny. So I'm going to give you the, <laughs> I'll give you the link, but I'm all on all social medias. And I also have my own podcast called Parent to be Colonized. And it's available anywhere you listen to podcasts except for Spotify. And I talk about how we can decolonize our parenting to raise more liberated children. I do center the black family, but these conversations are for everybody because I believe, especially for white people, we need to be, y'all need to be hearing these stories and understanding these things as well. Well, Yolanda, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah, so much fun. Thank you for having me. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. 
Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.